Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the immigration controversy. And Richard, we've got Donald Trump making waves again this week, this time over immigration. Uh, the president issuing several executive orders last week on the topic, including most controversially one about who can and can't come into the country. So let me just give our listeners the basic provisions of that executive order. It indefinitely barred Syrian refugees from entering the United States, suspended all refugee admissions for 120 days and blocked citizens of seven Muslim-majority countries, refugees or otherwise, from entering the United States for 90 days. Those countries, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. So Richard, just to start, I don't even want to discuss the implementation part of this yet. Let's just talk about the actual goal. This is being framed by the Trump administration as a national security imperative. Is that how you think about it? Well, that's the way they should think about it, at which point they wouldn't have done it. I mean, one of the things that you didn't mention, which I think becomes increasingly more salient, is when they start talking about having immigrants come back into the country, whether or not refugees, uh, they mean at least two additional classes of people. Those who've been here on green cards, that is their legal residents, perhaps for years, who've gone overseas to visit their family, and they're now treated as a sort of high-risk population who can't return to their jobs in the United States. It turns out that people who have taken their children home who may be citizens to see their grandparents can't come back into the United States either. So that's the first problem. The second problem is it also applies to dual nationals. So the old story that I read in one of the papers was a 34-year-old woman born, woman born in Iran. Uh, family migrates to Canada to escape from the Shah. She leaves Vancouver to get a job with Google in Seattle. Now she can't go home and bring her new baby to see her mother and her mother can't come to see her because dual citizens are essentially treated as individuals from the country of their origins. So all the people who fled to escape these various places are now underneath the gun. For the way in which America operates, the immigrant 90-day restriction that you referred to is the most devastating because it affects so many thousands of people who have been established in this country for so long. Even those people who are not trapped overseas can now not go overseas on standard business for vacations and everything else. And all of this is put into place at 4.43 in the afternoon to take effect immediately without notice or warning. What is the relationship between this and security? As best I can tell, it's inverse. Uh, that is, you have so enraged so many people that there's somebody who's likely to do something really stupid uh, because what they do is they see in the Trump administration a senseless amount of overbreath with respect to this provision. I am quite confident that it will not save a single life. And in fact, it will cost lives by not only increasing the risk that somebody will do something desperately foolish, but by diverting resources from other programs which should have a higher priority. I regard this as an unmitigated disaster. So let's talk a little bit about the implementation part. I, I don't know how to characterize what happened this weekend as anything other than chaos. You had people, as you mentioned, being told that you couldn't get back in the United States even if you had a green card. You had family members who were holed up in airports waiting for an answer as to whether they were going to see their loved ones or not. You were getting various answers from various security personnel at different airports. 
Richard, there are some people who are saying, you know, he could have – the president that is – he could have obviated all these problems with just a couple of fixes, which is you explicitly exclude the people who hold green cards from this kind of scrutiny. You don't apply it to people who were actually in transit at the time, but you sort of consult with the agencies basically saying you know, there was, there was a way to do this which could have mitigated most of the political fallout. So in your opinion, how much of the bedlam that we saw over the weekend was bad policy? How much of it was bad execution? Well, I think most of it is bad policy. I think what the execution does is made more vivid to people the massive dislocation. But now what you have to do is to imagine for 90 days all of American business and family relations are put on hold until the president figures out what ought to be done. He has got this exactly backwards. I mean, it's shameful how stupid it turns out to be. The correct way to do this is to say, ladies and gentlemen, we have a problem. I'm not going to do anything now in the short run because there's no imminent peril. And when I have a sense proposal for long-term reform, I will put it forward to you. What he does is he says, I don't know what to do. And then he puts in place the single most draconian measure in the history of American immigration law. And the reason he does it is because he's transfixed by his own campaign promises and he violates the fundamental norm of all decent politics, which is you vet things not only to your friends, but also to people who disagree with you. And you never, never, ever go public with a program of such magnificent consequences unless you've really thought out the way in which the implementation is going to take place. As far as I'm concerned, the long-term damage to Trump is not only uh, with respect to this particular motion, but it means that any time he does anything, the image of a chaotic president, thoughtless and crude in terms of the way in which he does things, will be there. And of course, his defenses have only made the things worse. You know, the Delta Airlines goes out at 6.35 on a Sunday afternoon. That's two days after all of this mayhem begins. And so he says that and Charles Schumer responsible for what's going on. These are the words of somebody who has lost his grasp on reality. And I think, in fact, the American people are going to realize that whatever you think of him as a campaign rhetoric guy, um, his hold on his own intellectual self-control and his moral impulsiveness is really very, very tenuous at this time. Richard, there were a variety of judges over the weekend who ruled against the Trump administration, not overturning the executive order but preventing the removal and in at least one case I think the detention of certain individuals. Uh, where is this order most legally vulnerable? Where could it get hamstrung in the courts? Well, everywhere, I think, is the correct answer. What happens is uh, the general presumption is one of enormous administrative discretion given to the president and to the offices associated with immigration. It's kind of a super Chevron doctrine of extreme deference because you're dealing with people who, by definition, have no rights under Americas because they're here at the pleasure of the government. And so it looks as though you know a frontal assault is very difficult. But at the edges, there are all sorts of questions. And what we're seeing now are at least two illustrations illustrations of how this works. Somebody comes up and says, well, you know, uh, there are conflicting provisions inside this particular document. Uh, so what I'm going to do is to prevent the distraction, the deportations from taking place under the irreparable harm document, which is if you look at the error to the government of waiting a week or so on this, what you had mentioned in your earlier question is these are relatively trivial. Think of what it does to the disruption of the lives of individuals and you see why judges are going to postpone it. Now, this is not a decision on the merits. This is not a decision 
decision on the constitutionality. This is just a short-term ex, you know, um, exp- expedient to help certain people. Well, at this point, the number of volunteer lawyers doing immigration work overwhelms the total number of lawyers in the legal services business. I mean, the students at NYU, where I teach, and I'm proud of them, they've gone out in droves to the airports and trying to help the way in which these people can navigate it. And so everybody's going to raise that kind of a charge. People are going to start bringing class action. They will find judges who are congenial to their positions. And, of course, there is a fifth columnist. Her name is Sally Quinn. And what she does is she sits in the Justice Department as acting attorney general, and she says, I'm not enforcing this thing until you can tell me why it is that I ought to do so. Now, if she has the power to direct people beneath her, she can tell them all to settle these cases out immediately, letting everybody come back in, and then dare the Trump administration to either fire her or to try to supersede her judgment. And if it's a settlement, it's binding on the government. If it's a decision on the merits in a lawsuit, it's not. These lawyers know these procedural stuff inside and out. And the first thing I'm going to say is, you give me 5,000, 10,000 really smart lawyers out there, their combined ingenuity will dwarf mine by orders of magnitude. And I can think of all sorts of things that would be done. And these people are much better at that than I am. So I think, in effect, it's just going to be guerrilla warfare up and down the line. The president has a very thin skin. He's going to rant and he's going to rave. And the more he does that, it saps the confidence that people have in him as a person. And my guess is that it really imperils the legitimacy of his presidency. Hard to imagine that he could have done anything so foolish within the first 10 days of being in office. So what happens in the sort of interim period? You mentioned the woman. Her name is Sally Yates. She's at the Justice Department. She's a holdover from the Obama administration. And you mentioned that the Trump administration is in a position right now where they either have to abide by this or they have to fire her, I guess. But they, they have a problem there because she's the only person at the department right now who can sign their foreign surveillance warrants. Pretty big job. What happens until there's a replacement at the Justice Department? Well, it's chaos in some sense. I mean, they will continue to do ordinary situations, but what she's done in effect is she has legitimated massive resistance on the part of every career professional inside that office. And you can't fire them all. What the president doesn't seem to understand is you need buy-in when you wish to have a major change in position. This means countless meetings with lots of people who are different, suspicious of what you're doing, and making adjustments in response to their most powerful complaints. You mentioned the couple of them at the beginning. My guess is if you start looking at the class of people in the United States on short-term visas who are not green cards, all the rest of this stuff, the H-1 visa program, there would probably be a thousand such adjustments that you would make. And he thought of none of this. He calls... uh, Giuliani, right? Now, what are you doing there? You've got to get professionals inside the field. You have to talk to your staff. The president really thinks that he can rule from a throne and expect everybody to do his bidding. Uh, The number of people who were resentful for him even before he took office because they were Clinton supporters was huge. The number of people who voted for Trump because they didn't like Clinton was probably very large. Does he think he can govern this country with a 10% approval rating, which seems to me to be where he's heading if he doesn't calm down? This is the most astonishing piece of political naivete that I've seen in all my years of having watched politics, which goes back as a little boy to the Truman administration. (laughs) We are recording this conversation on the evening of January 30th. We are told right now, which I say only because the dates changed a couple of times, that as of tomorrow night – We will get Donald Trump's pick for his Supreme Court justice to replace Antonin Scalia. How does this controversy affect that, Richard? 
Well, I mean, it actually, I think, helps the nominee if the nominee is anybody whom you would say is within the mainstream. So there's going to be a democratic question of crisis as to whether or not any Republican fits within the mainstream. And I mean, there are people like Charles Schumer who would like to say that they do not. Fortunately, Trump has taken very good advice over a long period of time from, from sale able people so that all the nominees he puts forward are extremely able, in many cases, quite courageous. I know two of them pretty well, Bill Pryor and Neil Gorsuch, I would count as friends. I've had the honor of placing clerks with both of them over the past several years. And they would be, I think, splendid additions to the Supreme Court for whom the label extremist could not be put. Um, it's easier for somebody to attack Pryor because he said some things that may be taken out of context than Gorsuch, who tends to be more of a technician. Uh, but what the Democrats want to make a fuss out of this, I think what they really do is they hurt themselves. The success against Trump is going to depend upon the ability to forge a coalition between all those people who voted for Hillary Clinton and all those people who voted for Donald Trump because they didn't want Hillary Clinton. Uh, but in fact, they don't want him either. And there are a large number of people in that group. And so if the Democrats essentially make this a progressive versus conservative situation, they're going to drive away natural allies. And my view is what they ought to do is to say, thank you very much for nominating this. We know we're going to get one of these guys because we can't simply stonewall forever. And what we're going to do is have this as a relatively low-key thing and keep the attention on the areas in which the president is most vulnerable. And I think the Republicans, of course, want to get this thing through. So it could be, I don't know if it will be, a situation in which the Supreme Court nominee essentially gets a relatively easy pass because it's in the interest of the Democrats to fight on this particular issue. Uh, They have handed the president an enormous victory. And remember, this is only round one. He still has all the asininity associated with building a $15 billion wall, which will keep no Nobody out and starting a trade war with Mexico and disrupting all of our business relationships everywhere else. If he puts that into place, the number of people who will be hurt by a trade war includes vast numbers of people who were his voters and supporters, and he'll fight a second world war. Uh, so this man finds himself in a desperate position. He's already attacked people like Lindsey Graham and John McCain as being World War Three agitators and so forth. He won't be able to keep the Republicans in the Senate. My dear hope is. I hope that now that the choice is between Trump and Pence, that he chooses mercifully to resign. I do not think that this country can survive with this level of unmitigated chaos or with a man who seems to have absolutely no level of self-control. And, you know, I didn't vote for Trump and I didn't vote for Clinton. But boy, if the choice is between Trump and Pence, I don't want to know anything about Michael Pence. Michael Pence, that's right, right? I don't want to know anything about him. He's already far more qualified than the incumbent. There was so much focus on this one aspect of immigration policy that it has somewhat distracted from the other two executive orders on the topic from last week. Uh, One of them was addressing sanctuary cities, which we talked about on last week's show. We have not, however, up until a few moments ago, (laughs) discussed the border wall with Mexico. This, of course, is one of the central promises of Trump's campaign. Richard, I was going to ask you if this is worth doing, but you referred to it as asininity a moment ago. So why don't you tell us in your judgment why it's not worth doing? Well, first of all, you have to understand the simple question, which way is the flow of traffic going? And the immigration problem with illegal aliens coming across the border, now called undocumented aliens, was a much more severe issue 10 years ago. Uh, Several things have happened. One is there's been relative stagnation under the Obama administration. The growth numbers for the fourth quarter of last year are, again, disappointingly low. No surprise, given that everything they did was an effort to kill rather than to promote growth. And on the other hand, 
the uh, Mexican government has entered into a series of relatively strong pro-market reforms. And as you change the relative balance of trade, you would expect people to respond to incentives and to stay home. The way in which we solve the immigration problem is to make Mexico more prosperous, not less prosperous. They will then want to buy more of our goods, which will put people back to work in the factories, and fewer people will feel that it's necessary to take desperate measures to get across. So the trade policy, essentially, if it's correctly done, is something which will help our quote-unquote immigration problem, which in some cases is, but not always, severe. So that's the first problem. The second problem is many of the people who are sneaking through Mexico are not Mexicans. It turns out they're from Central America. And if they can't get through that way, well, they're going to find some ways to take a boat around it or to dig a tunnel underneath it or to get into a plane or to fly over it or to get a visa, which they'll outstay and all the rest of it. So my guess is you're spending $15 billion to do essentially nothing in terms of the issues except to spoil relationships and the thought that he can bluster and bully his way to get Mexico to pay for the wall is, I think, preposterous. They'll say no. So then what this man does is he puts a tariff on Mexican goods. Well, two things are going to happen. One is many goods won't come to the United States, so American citizens will be hurt by the lack of choice. And others will come through with a heavy price tag, so they'll be basically forced to pay the Mexicans back for the money that they have to pay the United States government through the tariff. I mean, the president has so little understanding of the way in which people respond to incentives that he really thinks that he's basically still running his TV show. And if he says that somebody's fired, they're going to sort of slink off into the distance and shed a tear or two. There's going to be massive resistance on this particular front as well. And he ought to learn it. And once people who supported him realize that everything he said about trade is going to hurt them, uh, they will essentially turn angry at him as well. So my view about it is he is running the nature of a catastrophe on these fronts, not to mention all the other blunders he makes about Holocaust and the inexcusable mistake of putting somebody like Steve Bannon on the National Security Committee and getting rid of generals and intelligence officers who actually know what they're talking about. He is heading for disaster, and I think he ought to resign. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian, and you can find it at Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. You can also follow him on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.